Thank you. Good morning. It's nice to see those of you that we know. Uh, and for those of you that uh, don't know me and uh, I don't know you, uh, I was born and raised in a strong Roman Catholic church in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, um, came to know Christ when I was uh, 20 years old uh, as a result of the witness of family members. Uh, I knew right away, I don't know really how I knew right away, but I knew right away I was supposed to go and be a priest. Not a Catholic one, but one that taught the Bible. I understood that much difference, but I had no idea uh, we were called pastors. I really didn't know much at all about the Bible in spite of being raised in a very strong Catholic background. We had catechism. I was an altar boy for eight years, and uh, we were very, very religious on the outside, but uh, it was the Lord who put his truth on the inside and changed our hearts and uh, it's a real pleasure to say over the years, God saved every single one of my immediate family members and the four of us siblings he put into full-time ministry. Um, we were 20 years in Calgary planting Foundation Baptist Church and moved up here in 2009. And uh, uh, we started the uh, Foundation Baptist College over at Meadowlands Baptist Church in uh, 2009 and in 2012, uh, I was uh, asked to join the pastoral team at Lighthouse Baptist Church in the north, where we've been uh, since then. And I love your pastor. He's a blessing. I always enjoy it when he wants uh, counsel, uh, because I want fellowship with good men, and he's a good man. Um. About 43 years ago, I was in a Bible doctrines class, and the professor came in and uh, um, opened in prayer, and when he was done, he opened a book, and he began to read this, and it made a powerful, uh, had a powerful effect on me, made a strong influence on me, and uh, as I was reading recently uh, another passage that you know, in your own regular daily Bible reading, you read over passages and you think, this is so good, but I decided that the Lord would have me to meditate on it. And this story came back to my mind. So I want to begin by sharing it with you. Victor was a Christian of good family in Marseille in France. He spent a great part of the night in visiting the afflicted and confirming the weak, which pious work he could not uh, do consistently with his own safety in the daytime. And his fortune he spent in relieving the distresses of poorer Christians. He was at length, however, seized by the Emperor Maximian's decree, who ordered him to be bound and dragged through the streets. During the execution of this order, he was treated with all manner of cruelties and indignities by the enraged populace. Remaining still inflexible, his courage was considered obstinacy. Being by order stretched upon the rack, he turned his eyes toward heaven and prayed to God to endue him with 
patience. That would not be the first thing I would think to pray for in those circumstances. Patience. But a a good circumstance for that, and that's what he did. Uh, After which he underwent the tortures with admirable fortitude. After the executioners were tired with inflicting tortures upon him, he was conveyed to a dungeon. In his confinement, he converted the jailers, three men named Alexander, Felician, and Longinus. After uh, this affair coming to the ears of the emperor, the emperor ordered them immediately, that is the three jailers, to be put to death. Victor was then again put to the rack, unmercifully beaten with batons, and once again sent to prison. Being a third time examined concerning his religion, he persevered in his principles. Then a small altar was brought, and he was commanded to offer incense upon it immediately. Fired with indignation at the request, he boldly stepped forward and overthrew with his foot both the altar and the idol. This so enraged the emperor Maximian, who was present, that he ordered the foot with which he had kicked the altar to be immediately cut off. Victor was thrown into a mill and crushed with the stones. A.D. 303. And then the professor said, this is real Christianity. And I've never forgotten that. Now, the passage is going to illuminate Victor's behavior. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 14, Luke's gospel chapter 14, and I want to begin in verse 25. Luke's gospel chapter 14 and verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to um, finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or... What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil 
or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This passage is one of several in which Jesus explains the cost of discipleship. Being a disciple means what? What word comes to your mind when you think of the word disciple? A a student, okay, a learner. I'll, I'll take that back into its first century idea. Uh, someone who learns, a follower typically, is what we think of in connection with a disciple. But being a disciple of Christ is unique. Why is that? Because it means to be a follower who has total commitment to the master. He's not just a professor to be enjoyed. He is a master to be followed, just like Victor did back in AD 303. The work of a church is to make disciples of Christ, and not just to increase the number of attenders, though many of us can be happy with just an increase in attendance. This is often viewed as success, but look at what Luke 14, 25 says. I want you to see the setting in which he said these words. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. You will notice when we read that a phrase is repeated three times in verse 26, verse 27, and 33. It is this, cannot be my disciple. This, I don't know, I suppose you'd call this reverse evangelism. This is how you cannot come to me. This is how you cannot be saved if you don't do these things. So really, the question of our message on a passage like this is, what would it take for you to stop being a follower of Christ? What would it take for you to quit him and decide... I'm not doing this. Um, And what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus must come before all of our family. Jesus must come before our own life. And, And that was what Victor was living, right? Actually, that's what he was dying. This principle of discipleship, he must come before all of our possessions. And if you've never taken him as your personal savior, you are considering becoming a Christian, have you counted the cost of that? Have you calculated what that's going to involve? Do you realize what Jesus is asking of you when he asks you to take him as your savior? Um, So the message is both for Christians and for 
non-Christians. When I got saved, all I thought of is he's going to save me from my sins. And I wanted that more than I wanted anything. So I didn't realize that it was repentance that I was doing, but I meant it and I repented. But as you live the Christian life, you come to circumstances that providence provides for you and you say, oh, I have to do this? I was not aware I would have to do this. In fact, to show you how in the dark I was, even as a young Christian, I told our pastor, I said, I believe God wants me to go into ministry full time or whatever I called it. He made me stop calling him father. And, uh, and I had to stop saying I was going to be a priest. So I got those out of my system pretty quick. But he says, you do realize that means you have to stand up in front of people and talk. Whoa, no. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that part of it. I just wanted to be able to tell others what you and other folks have been telling me for the last two years. Uh, But uh, you learn things as you go along in the Christian life. Um, You don't always... Uh, you don't always calculate accurately at the beginning. But if you are saved, a passage like this is designed to help stiffen that spiritual backbone so that, yes, I am facing a very difficult situation, but it reminds me of a passage in John chapter 6. Um, He preached the message. Remember, it was a hard saying, and the hard saying was, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. You can't come to me. You can't have eternal life. And, And what happened, according to verse 60, is when many of his disciples, notice the word, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walking with him. Disciples, stop following. And reminded me of that. What Peter says, Jesus turns to the twelve and he says to them, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, the thing that makes whatever God asks of us easy to do is he's God. He's not a taskmaster. He is a loving Lord. He is a loyal Savior. I remember understanding that word applied to me and thinking to myself, how would you be loyal to me? I'm so uh, unloyal to you. But you learn as a Christian that he does not reward us according to our sins, but he is gracious and by his grace teaches us. So, What does he come before in our lives? Well, there are three of them. Everywhere you see that phrase, 
cannot be my disciple, there is one of the conditions of coming to Christ or true discipleship. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I think in a passage like this, in fact, I was a little bit amused that uh, quite a few of the commentaries I looked at said, this is one of those verses that we always have to explain one word in. And the word in verse 26 is hate. Uh, Does God literally mean that we must have antipathy or that we must despise family members? Well, we know right off the bat he cannot mean that because he says you must hate your wife. And that can't be. Why? We're commanded to love our wives. And God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't say, well, that's a bit strong. I think I'll throw in a little bit of hate there so the men don't have so much to do. But no, it can't be a contradiction. God never contradicts himself. I know that it can't be that. How can we despise people that we are supposed to honor from our heart or that we are supposed to love as Christ loved the church? He did not hate the church. We also know that that can't be what it means because of the parallel statement in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Loves more than me. And that can be difficult. That can be difficult because we love our parents and you children who are here, it's right to love and to obey and honor your parents. But notice what he says. There is a third way that we know Jesus is not telling us this large crowd, telling the large crowd that's there not to dislike family members. And that way is this. The Holy Spirit uses this same kind of expression elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 9.13 is quoting from Malachi 1. As it is written, Jesus says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And yet we know from the account of Esau's life in Genesis that God certainly showed hatred for him in an unusual way, blessed him extraordinarily because he was a descendant of Abraham. Well, what does it mean then? It means that God chose to give the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob and not to Esau. And that's exactly what it means in our context I cannot choose my family first if I want to follow Christ. I cannot choose to follow them if they say I must do this and Christ says I must do this. I have to say I love you very much, but Christ has clearly directed me this way and I must follow him. 
It does not mean that I cannot love and respect my family very much as long as I never love them more than I love who? Christ. One fellow said, following Jesus is to be the disciples' first love. This pursuit is to have priority over any family member and even over one's life, which means that other concerns always take second place to following Jesus. Uh, Americans pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. When we become a Christian, we pledge that loyalty to Christ. Uh, I remember uh, my younger brother came up to speak at our winter camp down in Calgary one time, and on Saturday night of winter camp, we stand around a bonfire and sing, and uh, somebody said, can we, can we sing America the Beautiful? I was a little embarrassed because I'd been here long enough not to remember the words. <laughs> so I'm just kind of, hmm, oh yeah, yeah, that's what you say now. And, and uh, so my brother, you know, joined right in. He sings that out loud. And, and now uh, somebody said, well then, let's sing O Canada. Well, I know those words. I uh, joined in and didn't have any problem singing that. <laughs> my brother, about halfway through, pokes this and says, how can you say that? I said, because I am a Canadian. I really am. I'm a citizen. I joined a while back. Figured that would be a nice thing to do. So, um, But we pledge allegiance to Christ. The disciple pledges his or her allegiance to one before whom nothing can come. My loyalty must always be to him. And if I am loyal to someone or something before him, what is true according to verse 26? I cannot be his disciple. Now that's very powerful in North American Christianity when it's easy to get saved. We so often suffer so little for our decision for Christ, even if the rest of our family is not born again. At least we don't live in a culture like some do today, right as we speak. In parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are paying the price that Jesus speaks of here. That most of us only read in the Bible rather than experience in life. Verse 25, what were the people in the crowd uh, Excuse me, I got ahead of myself there a little bit. Jesus told the crowd, um, if anyone comes to me, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Uh, it means to seek him, some kind of a relationship with him. And if we stop and think about it, there's a big crowd. That's what initiated this uh, line of discourse with Jesus. Some kind of a relationship with him. What do you mean some kind of a relationship with him? Well, some only wanted help with some life problem. Uh, we had a 
big meeting in Calgary back in 1991, and uh, the city was involved. All of the churches got together. There were billboards all over town. Do you have a drinking problem? Come to Jesus. Uh, Is your marriage uh, having trouble? Come to Jesus. And uh, over and over again, messages like that. And it reminded me, why did they call him Jesus again? Because he was to save us from those kinds of life situations? No, because he was to save us from our sins. That's what we need to be saved from. It's not that those other things aren't relevant or needful in people's lives, but they are down the list. Some people came to him uh, to be fed. Some people came to him to be healed, perhaps. Most of them during his public ministry came for that. Or they were following him because others were following him. A little bit of Acts chapter 19, you know, why are you here in the amphitorium yelling? I don't know. I don't know what we're yelling about, but there are other people here, so I'm here yelling with them. And that's what they were, a large crowd following him. Or some people, too many probably, were like Herod in Luke 23. They just wanted to be entertained. They hoped to see some miracle done by him. But there were others who wanted to ask him to save them from their sins. See verse 25? What were the people in that crowd all doing? They were continually accompanying Jesus. They had come to him, to be with him, to go where he went. And so Jesus clarified what it meant not just to walk along with him, but to really come to him. A real disciple, a true follower, really coming to Jesus means yielding everything to him, even my family. But Jesus does not stop there. In the second place, verse 26, Jesus comes before, or excuse me, verse 27, Jesus comes before the disciples' own life. I'm going to read the first part of 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what else does Jesus say? I cannot choose in addition to my own family. I cannot choose my own well-being. Can you imagine all North Americans having this as their main concern? I would think the fashion industry, the cosmetic industry, much of the health industry would disappear when people did not make that their chief goal in life, to look a little bit better, to live a little bit longer. Paul says something like this to the Ephesian elders when he met with them on the shore of the Aegean Sea in Acts chapter 20. He told them, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me 
but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. There it is. He has turned his back on his own life. I do not count my life as of any account. I do not consider my physical well-being as precious to myself. If only, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my goal in life, to do what he has given me to do to be where he wants me to be, with whom he wants me to be, doing what he wants me to be doing. That's what we live for. Whether you're in the ministry full-time or not, the Lord still has that choice for every single person who knows him. Every martyr makes the same choice that Paul made, just as Victor did, but even if I'm never actually martyred, I may, or excuse me, I am called to daily present my body to God as a living what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's what the Christian life is. It is the sacrifice of my life, my plans, everything that I hope for. And so just write down what are all the things you want in life. Write them all down and then push it away from you on your knees by the bed or by a chair and say, God, this is my will, but not my will be done, but your will, Lord. I want to do what you saved me to do. I want to be what you saved me to be. What did it mean for someone who was part of the Roman Empire in the first century to bear his own cross? I mean, we do have a remarkable example of this, right? John nineteen seventeen, and Jesus went out bearing his own cross to a place called Golgotha. It means that I must be prepared to die for my commitment to Christ. You know, I can say that, and, and there's no place more secure to say, Lord, I want you to help me to be faithful in the face of persecution all the way to my death. Thank you for my warm, comfortable bed, where I'll probably never have to actually make that decision in life. But we should live as sacrifices, even if he never calls us to make that one. Having taken up my cross, what does verse 27 tell me to do? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. So I carry it as long as I am going after Jesus throughout my whole life, prepared to do whatever he asks of me because I have been bought with a price. It's not my life. It's not my career. It's not where I want to be or what I want to be doing. 
It's all under the Lord Jesus. Is this what you want for me? That's the question I want to answer. And then thirdly, Jesus comes before all disciples' possessions. And I'm going to include verses 28 to 33 in this. Verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus does something very interesting here. He gives two criteria for being a disciple by telling the reader that our failure to do them will keep us from being a true disciple. And he gives a third criteria. But before he gets to that third one, he gives us two illustrations. Um, How we should weigh, how we should consider these three criteria for discipleship. But notice the first word in verse 28. You are to do what I'm saying in verses 26 and 27 for or because you don't want to be like somebody building a tower and not counting the cost. By the way, towers were common for viticulturalists to protect their crops. What in the world is a viticulturalist? A grape grower. Viticulture is growing grapes. You say, really? Towers were common? They really were. Um, And and, uh, you'll see this um, uh, in uh, Matthew 21 where Jesus says here another parable, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, uh, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built the tower. This is what you do. I I want a vineyard. Well, then you got to make a hedge, dig a wine press, and build a tower. Tower, of course, is to protect your crop. So even before this guy starts to build, he needs to calculate the whole cost, which I would imagine would be significant, for a tower. Uh, I want you to notice particularly what he did. I had this underlined in my Bible before I read this as my passage recently. Uh, He counted the cost. That's what he did. He calculated the expense involved. And what if he does not count the cost? Well, won't be able to finish it and will be mocked for his poor planning. How does this illustration apply to the would-be disciple? We must not fail to reckon on the requirements. And sometimes the gospel is so poorly presented that people say, well, this is wonderful. He's going to fix all my life problems. And I really don't have to change at all. Oh, dear. What's wrong? Well, that's not salvation. That's not getting saved. But you say, wait a minute, I prayed a prayer. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's not salvation. The second illustration, really different from the first, because the king who's trying to appreciate if he can successfully overcome an attack See, the guy building the tower, he does it on his own initiative. This portrays those coming to Christ. But the king, who's calculating whether he can win a battle, is the one being attacked. And 
He has to deliberate. Notice that word. He thinks about a possible course of action. Is my 10,000 stronger than his? How does this apply to us? We already are saved. We already are saved. And we've dedicated our one-year-old son to him. And then God takes him. And you stand by the bed of your dying child and you say, this is not what I meant when I dedicated him to you. This is not what we were thinking of. We thought you would just take him and make him a servant of yours. And then, as a loving God does, he healed our son. And he did put him into the ministry. But it's, it's that moment where he's asking you, can you do this for me? And I said, yes. But I didn't know what that was going to involve. Well, the key to verse 33 is the term to renounce. The key to verse 26 was the word hate. This key is to renounce everything we have. Uh, The disciple must be in a habit of continually renouncing his earthly things. I must always be taking leave of them. That's what the word means. Saying farewell to them, walking away from them, relinquishing my interest in them. But this is hard in the society we live in. You get married. You meet with a financial planner. What does he want you to start doing? Saving for your own house. Arranging your finances so you get the things of this world that I'm supposed to be renouncing as a disciple. The world's things, clothing, not just for us personally, but for our family, shelter. We plan to own our own home and then assure the home's safety with insurances and Upkeep, and then we buy transportation, which is arranged to fail about every 10 years if you take good care of it, so that now you need another one. And during that whole 10 years, people on television are telling you, you must have another one. Everybody does, and you don't want to settle for some economical thing. You need the flash. And we are, we are pounded with messages like this, which run completely contrary to the gospel of the disciple. We cannot gather them, or welcome them, or treasure them, or, or uh, value them beyond what they are good for. And what are they good for? For helping us do God's will while we're here on earth. Nobody gets buried with his or her house. He gets buried with the car. I don't know. I mean, folks can be strange. Not me, but some folks can be really strange. (laughs) Who knows what they get buried with. But we can't keep them from blinding us to the real reason that we're here. We must continually be renouncing, abandoning, repudiating, disowning, relinquishing, 
disavowing them. They are God's gifts to us, and we may enjoy them, but never at the expense of the will of God. And because we have so much, it's easy to get attached to so much. Remember the rich young ruler? Why did he walk away? Because he was very rich. Well, what difference does that make? Somewhere he got attached to all that and was not willing to give it up. And we don't need any situation that threatens our commitment to him. So, are they our things? Well, in a sense, they are, yes. What do we need to do? We need to steward them. That's the right thing to do. And we enjoy them from the hand of God. But God, I'll look forward to being in a different kind of house. And where cars don't ever break down. And where the only insurance I need is to see you face to face from time to time. And what do we renounce? All that we have. Everything. We hold everything loosely. We hold family loosely. We love our children, but not as much as Christ. We love all the family, but not as much as Christ. We love our lives. We try and take care of them and and be equipped as much as we can for what God has called us to do, but not as much as we love Christ. So, what is the cost of discipleship? Everything. That's what it is. Everything. Not only do I not have stuff, I don't have relations, I don't have rights. I am the Lord's doulos. Earthly family, my own life, all that I possess, often God does not actually require these things of me. Many of us have born-again families. They appreciate that we live out and out for God. We're not asked to die for our faith or to give up all of our possessions, but God's good gifts to us need to be held loosely. We need to be watchful, not only to guard our own hearts, but the hearts of those for whom we are responsible to train them to be disciple-minded followers of Christ. And if we don't, what will happen? Verse 34, salt is good. Nothing wrong with salt, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil not even for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A disciple without commitment is like tasteless salt of no use. Complete commitment is what we need. Let's not be useless disciples. And if you're here deciding whether or not you're going to become a Christian and what's the right reason for becoming a Christian. It is because we are sinners and nothing, nothing will ever take away that sin. Not all of the work we do, not all of the praise, prayers we pray, 
will ever take away that sin but the Lord Jesus. And so when Jesus says to us, will you also go away? We say, Lord, I may not understand your message, but I know this, you are God. And you are my Savior. And you are my Lord. And I will follow you by your grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that we have the privilege of serving you all lifelong. You are a gracious Savior, and we need grace to say the kinds of words that Peter said. We need your grace, Lord, to make right choices as we go through life. We need your grace to hold all of our possessions loosely, to hold all of our earthly loves loosely, to hold our own personal life loosely. We pray that you would be glorified through us. And Lord, please grant that we may have the privilege, like Victor, of leading others to know you as Savior and to enjoy eternal blessing, not just in this life, but forever after. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.